0: You are listening to The Political Periscope, a weekly podcast brought to you by Radio Wnet. Interviews on international politics, security, geopolitics, economy and more. Every Thursday at 7 p.m. In today's episode of The Political Periscope, you will listen to two interviews. The first one with Benedict Rogers, co-founder and chief executive of Hong Kong Watch, author of the book The China Nexus. The second with Jack Handon, program manager at the International Republican Institute, expert on China's influence in the world. Political Periscope Benedict Rogers, last weekend we've observed... Uh, the Munich Security Forum, and uh, there was one speech in this forum that really drew my attention. It was Wang Yi's speech, um, the Minister of Foreign Affairs of China. It was really, well, outstanding in a way of other uh, speeches, because I think that um, it was different. There was a lot of um, content actually in this speech we knew already what others were going to say, more or less. Uh, It wasn't a big surprise, but uh, Wang Yi, for me, personally, was a surprise, maybe for you as an expert. Uh, It wasn't.
1: Yes, uh, uh, I think it was definitely, perhaps not a surprise, but certainly uh, very significant. Um, And I think it is a sign of um, the regime in China really... Uh, accelerating and intensifying its um, its hostility towards uh, the West, towards the free world, um, and of course, it was followed by his visit to Moscow, uh, uh, where he um, described the relationship between China and Russia as uh, as a rock solid. Um, and to me, at a time when we're in the uh, well, we're about to mark the uh, first anniversary of of putin's invasion of ukraine for for wang yi to express such support for for putin and for russia is uh, also very significant so i think it's a sign of um the increased tensions uh but also an attempt to try to divide uh, the west because i know wang yi is also trying to exert influence within europe um so i think very significant
0: exactly you said dividing the world the west um- he mentioned a few times that Europe has to make its choice uh make its choice so he's putting Europe on the opposite of the. US which has already made its choice uh, do I understand it well
1: I think that's correct um I think he's clearly trying to turn Europe against uh, the US um uh, and I think already I mean for some time now China has been exerting influence, uh, at least in parts of, of Europe, uh, through commercial ties, and then as a result of commercial ties, trying to turn Europe um, politically and in, in terms of security uh, matters as, as well. So yes, I, I think that is their,
0: their aim. In a way, the Chinese project to influence, to rise, raise its influence in Europe, especially Central Europe, um, is failing. Um because we see such countries as Lithuania, um, Estonia, uh, but also even Poland diminishing its level of um, cooperation with China. Um, but there are also other regions of the world. Um, do you think uh, China really has a, still has a possibility to influence uh, Europe economically, to gain maybe some political influence also here? I think you're correct
1: that... Uh uh, attitudes are changing and um, becoming more critical of China in uh, much of Europe. And uh, you're, you're right to point, especially to Lithuania uh, and Estonia. Um, uh, and uh, I think in other parts of the European Union, um, to varying degrees, uh, opinion is starting to shift. Um, but there are still uh, clear uh, links between China and, and parts of Europe. I think the influence in Hungary, for example, is still uh, worryingly strong. And, um, uh, but as you, as you say, there are other parts of the world where China is uh, exerting uh, perhaps even more influence, uh, particularly in its own backyard in, in the Asia region, in Southeast Asia, uh, in Africa, where it's uh, um, definitely making a big impact. Uh, and to some extent in, in Latin America, Uh, and the Middle East. Xi Jinping, I think, was in Saudi Arabia uh, fairly recently. So uh, they are trying to um, uh, expand their influence as a a global power.
0: In the 90s and in the beginning of uh, the 21st century, Russia seemed uh, to be, for the West, a counterweight uh, for China, However, right now it's rather China stopping Russia in its war against the uh, West. Mm. But uh, also for China, Russia uh, is um, a competitor in Central Asia. What's uh, real? What are real relations between uh, Russia and China?
1: Well, I'm not an expert on China-Russia relations But my observation is that um, they've actually strengthened their relationship uh, quite considerably, at least on the surface, uh, because they see it as to their advantage, to the advantage of both Beijing and Moscow to to present the narrative as uh, a struggle between uh, authoritarian uh, regimes and democratic regimes. And so... If that's the way the narrative is, is framed. Clearly, Beijing and Moscow are, are allies uh, in pursuit of their authoritarian vision uh, for, for the world. And um, it's quite concerning. Uh, the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, just uh, ahead of the Munich uh, conference, expressed concern that China might uh, provide arms to, to Russia. Um, uh, clearly, as I mentioned, Wang Yi's uh, visit to Moscow just before the anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine and describing the relationship as rock solid is, is a sign that uh, if China is on anybody's side uh, in the matter of Ukraine, it, it, it clearly is on Putin's side. Um, so uh, having said that, I, I think it is a sort of marriage of convenience and I think uh, clearly there are some areas like Central Asia uh, where they're in more competition um and other areas where they're more in alliance
0: china is also seemed as a possible market for russian oil and gas but uh, is it a plausible solution for russia
1: uh i think it's certainly uh it it, it would it would provide uh something of a further lifeline to russia uh, if if that happens and um i mean it's been very noticeable since the start of the war in ukraine since since the invasion uh, that uh china has um, really clamped down on any expressions domestically of of uh opposition to uh, the invasion um and i think that uh china as a market for for russian gas would be um another way of putin uh prolonging and sustaining um, his his regime and his war. So, yes, I, I I think it would be significant.
0: Do you think that uh, China wants to sustain Putin's war, to prolong it? Uh, it's not really good for their interests in Europe. Uh, it uh, makes it difficult for them to transport goods from China to Europe uh, via trains, and uh, it seems to be their preferred um, mode of transport. Um, so isn't why isn't china like intervening in some way politically uh putting a pressure to to end this war yes i think i think the
1: regime in china has actually conflicting interests because on the one hand it is a regime that seems to uh, really uh, value stability um and that seems to always be their priority is stability and and therefore one would think from that point of view that they would uh, want uh, the war to end uh, and, and, and for there to be uh, peace uh, in Ukraine. Um, on the other hand, I, I guess that ideologically what they don't want is a victory for uh, the West or a victory for the free world uh, and a victory for, for democracy, um, which is what a, a Ukrainian victory over Putin uh, would, uh, would be and would symbolise so i my guess is they would probably be uh, um playing a number of different sides and maybe exerting influence where they can with putin to try to reach some kind of um uh compromise and try to end the, the war but um they don't appear to be doing anything at all to uh, to oppose putin uh, or anything at all to support uh ukraine um and so I think that's because of these conflicting uh, interests of of wanting stability, but on the other hand, not wanting uh, democracy, freedom, and the West to
0: uh, defeat their ally. You said it's some kind of alliance between authoritarian regimes. Mm. I remember well, there was a period, mm, maybe 12, 15 years ago, when it seemed that China could go towards democracy. Um, right now, there are, are there such tendencies right now in China, or, um, or it went completely the opposite way?
1: Yes, I mean, you're absolutely correct. Uh, I, I uh, have been working on China for um, more than 30 years. I first went to China uh, in 1992, when I was 18 years old, uh, to teach English um, uh, for six months. Uh, And uh, I've traveled to China many times uh, since then, although in 2017, I was denied entry to Hong Kong on the orders of Beijing, and so I haven't been able to go back since then. But my observation, um, and I describe this actually in a a new book that I just published uh, called The China Nexus, my observation was that in the uh, late 1990s and the first decade of the 2000s, China was definitely opening up, Um, whether it was headed for Democracy as such, I think, is in doubt, but certainly it was uh, a period of relative relaxation. There was some form of civil society, uh, albeit uh, restricted, and there were red lines. um, But but within those red lines, there was some space for civil society, some space even for dissent, uh, for uh, independent uh, media and bloggers. Uh, even Chinese uh, lawyers who were able to take up human rights cases. So that was happening during those years. I think what happened, uh, definitely the the situation has gone in a totally opposite direction in the last uh, 10 or 12 years, particularly under the leadership of Xi Jinping. I think the crackdowns predated uh, Xi Jinping in that it probably began around the time of the Beijing Olympics in 2008. Uh, and I think at that point, uh, the regime in Beijing felt firstly they had uh, secured the um, uh, the accolade of, of of hosting the Olympics, so they'd sort of got everything they wanted and didn't feel the need to uh, please uh, the West. But also at the same time, there was a movement within China known as the Charter '08 uh, movement, which was led by the former uh, uh, the, the the Nobel Peace Prize laureate Liu Xiaobo. Uh, uh, and that was a movement very much for democracy. And Liu Xiaobo ended up being arrested and, of course, died uh, in detention. Uh, and at around that same time, there were the uh, various uh, colour re- revolutions, the so-called Arab Spring and, and other other uprisings uh, around the world. And I think the regime in China looked around the world and saw these uh, movements for democracy and uh movements that were overthrowing dictatorships uh, and uh, became very alarmed and perhaps thought that they had allowed uh, uh, liberalisation, relaxation, uh, the space that had had emerged to go too far and they felt threatened by that and so uh, they uh, imposed this crackdown and today um, all of that space that I described has disappeared. Uh, Many of the people who were operating within that space, Uh, lawyers and dissidents and activists, uh, have also disappeared. Uh, And there has been a serious crackdown on all basic freedoms and and human rights, and on on top of that, of course, um, there has been the dismantling of Hong Kong's uh, freedoms, uh, continued atrocities in Tibet, uh, intensifying religious persecution of Christians and, and of others. Uh, and the genocide of the uh, Uyghur uh, people, and which is increasingly being recognized as a genocide. So there was that window of opportunity where it, I myself was hopeful for China's future. But as I describe in my new book, uh, it's it's gone in a, a really terrible direction in the last decade.
0: The pandemic of COVID-19 showed that China can be really vulnerable um, when it came to uh, to cut chains of supply, uh, to um, ships withheld uh, withheld in uh, ports, um, it was a really uh, really bad situation for China. Uh, also, there are some demographic struggles right now. Uh, in um, few decades, uh, China can ch- China's social system can collapse.
1: Yes, that's exactly correct. Uh, I think the The one-child policy that uh, China had for many years, which they've now changed uh, to, I believe, a two-child policy, but for many years, uh, it was forbidden to have more than one child. And that uh, really uh, did huge damage to the demographics. It it meant a totally disproportionate uh, number of of men who weren't able to find uh, women to marry. Um, That led to uh, a rise in trafficking of women from other countries in Asia to be sold effectively as, as wives for Chinese men, uh, and, uh, and, a, and a lot of other uh, big, big problems, and I think the pandemic has um, caused uh, a number of problems for China, um, firstly of course in, in terms of its international reputation, the fact that uh, it um, failed to alert the international community to COVID-19 early enough. Uh, and the fact that it basically covered up uh, the truth about uh, COVID uh, for for quite a long time, silenced uh, the doctors who were trying to raise the alarm uh, about it. Um, But also it did obviously huge uh, economic uh, damage as as it did to all countries. Um, And then I think politically, uh, it was really interesting to see uh, at the end of last year the uh, protests that emerged uh, across China, quite large protests, I would say they were the largest and most significant protests that we have seen since uh, the Tiananmen protests of 1989. And what was uh, significant about them was that, although they were protests sparked by the very draconian uh, lockdown policies that the regime had put in place because of Covid, um, the zero Covid uh, policy, Actually, when you listen to what the protesters were were saying, they were not just saying uh, uh, lift the lockdown, uh, end the zero COVID policy. Um, they were actually saying Xi Jinping stepped down and uh, Chinese Communist Party stepped down. And that's the first time I've heard protests making such a political attack on the regime uh, so overtly uh, in, in in a long time. So I think, and of course, the, the response from the regime was very unusual in that uh, they actually did respond to the protesters demands and and lifted the covid restrictions very suddenly and dramatically and it's very unusual for the regime to give in to uh popular pressure uh so that to me suggested that uh this regime is perhaps more fragile uh, and weak <laughs> than we might uh, uh, have previously thought and um that brings a lot of um a lot of questions and challenges for uh for the next few years for
0: China. So is there any threat for world peace, any threat for the West from China?
1: Yes, I, I think there is a, a growing and very serious uh, threat. Um, uh, first of all, I, I think for the first time in um, decades, the uh, likelihood of um, uh, a Chinese uh, attempt to, uh, invade and take Taiwan uh, has increased very significantly. If you'd asked me five or ten years ago whether I thought uh, a military invasion of Taiwan was likely, I would have been quite sceptical. Uh, now I, I I wouldn't put a time frame on it. I, I think it's unpredictable uh, uh, the timing, um, but I think the intention and the likelihood has certainly increased, and it's something we we should try to prevent, uh, and and we should certainly be uh, alert to um but but also i think china is a threat to uh, to us in uh, in europe and in the free world um not uh, so much militarily necessarily but through uh espionage um, uh influence uh, intimidation infiltration campaigns um uh, the influence within universities uh within the business sector uh within various other sectors Uh, is now, I think, very significant. Uh, In the UK, uh, there are something like uh, at least 40 or more than 40 British universities that have direct uh, uh, research uh, agreements with institutions in China that are linked directly to the regime and to the military, um, giving them access uh, to to research and knowledge that could potentially be used uh, against us. Um, So, yes, I think... uh, not the Chinese people, uh, but the Chinese Communist Party regime is certainly a threat to uh, the, the free world. In fact, arguably, although Putin's invasion of Ukraine is the most serious imminent uh, military th- threat, I think in the long term, actually, China is the bigger threat and the biggest threat to freedom in the world.
0: Do you think that if China tries to annex Taiwan, um, tries to invade Taiwan, could it start the third the third world war uh, I, it certainly has that potential um uh,
1: of course I I hope that um, uh, Western countries particularly the United States uh, would come to Taiwan's aid uh, in such a situation and that obviously uh, could therefore mean a conf- confrontation between the US and uh, and China I think other regional countries uh, Allies such as Japan uh, would probably be uh, in- involved, and if the West doesn't uh, act uh, and um, and uh, and uh, and uh, well doesn't act militarily, uh, that also is very dangerous because um, China then would be emboldened. If they're able to take Taiwan, they probably won't stop there. They'll they'll, they'll uh, uh, threaten uh, other countries uh, in the region. So either way, uh, I think it would be an extremely dangerous situation and, and has the makings of um, a third world war or, or at least uh, probably the biggest war that uh, uh, we have faced in, in my generation.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. Jack Herndon. A few days ago, there was a security conference in Munich. And among many speakers, uh, there was also Wang Yi, Uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs of China. And uh, his speech seemed rather hostile towards the United States. He expresses verbis accused the United States of uh, stealing the benefits from China. What is the current attitude of China towards the United States? Was this speech reflecting it well?
2: I mean, uh, the speech definitely reflects the current attitude of the Chinese government towards the United States. Um, it, obviously, it's it's probably the worst it's been in decades. Uh, there was an opportunity, and it doesn't look like there's many opportunities moving forward for it to improve, at least in 2023. Um, Blinken and, and Wang Yi did it. Did look like they managed to meet on the sidelines of the Munich, Munich Security Conference. However, the readouts of of the meetings kind of suggest that they're both talking past each other. Um, I think Wang's speech at the Munich Security Conference definitely reflected um, the PRC's current agenda, which is to discredit the United States, appeal to the, the uh, European sense of strategic autonomy, uh, appeal to kind of fears of the direction that, um, that the war in Ukraine is going and try to frame everything as though this is caused by the United States, that you know, the United States is just dragging Europe into another cold war, that it is pouring fuel on the flames of the war in, in Ukraine and, and that it is that the United States is solely responsible for it to, for its uh, continuation. Um, but really hostility of, of the Chinese government towards the United States is nothing new, it's actually fairly consistent we're just seeing it a little bit more uh, up front now um, The United, uh, according to the Chinese government or, or actually the Chinese Communist Party the, the United States is its primary contradiction, to use its own communist terms, it's this is how it's actually seen the United States uh, from the 1950s, from the beginning of the Cold War um, through the 80s, 90s early 2000s, even though the rhetoric was very different at that point, we're just Simply seeing it kind of resurge uh, as the, as the party becomes more self-confident and assertive. Um, I don't think that this is any deviation from uh, from, from where things normally stand. however, it, it does look like there's decreased communication between these two governments and and the, uh, the bottom seems to be falling out under the relationship.
0: while well, Joe Biden visited Kiev and Warsaw, uh, Wang Yi went to Moscow yeah. uh, so can we consider? china russian ally right now
2: well they are technically speaking china only has one ally and it's the um it's the north koreans uh they they traditionally don't don't take allies um however it's it's very clear that uh russian and chinese interests are are increasingly aligned um, they are two revisionist powers that want to, to blunt the power and influence of the United States and to reshape the global order uh, in a way that, that defangs it of its democratic values so that they can, they can um, have regime security for their own model of governance. Uh, Wang, Wang Yi's uh, visit to, to Russia uh, might be laying the groundwork for Xi's visit later this spring. Um, it's definitely it definitely shows that over the course of the last year, Beijing and Moscow have only grown closer together, not further apart uh, during this war. Um, and Biden's visit to Kyiv kind of really underlines the direction that uh, that the United States is going; that it's committed to, to defending democratic values. Um, there is no there is no formal. Uh, um, security treaty between the United States and Ukraine. The only reason why the United States provides security support to Ukraine is very much for the defense of democratic values and that's really what holds that that relationship together.
0: Joe Biden here in Warsaw said that uh, it's actually a war against uh, authoritarian regimes, fight against uh, authoritarian regimes of democracy, against authoritarian regimes. Uh, Do you think he included also China?
2: A hundred percent. I mean, China is at the top of the United States' list of priorities. Uh, China is really the primary long-term threat. Russia is still very problematic, however. China is the only country with both the power, uh, economic power, diplomatic power, uh, security power to uh, to change the world order, and it has the intent to do so. Russia is really um, uh, not the not the not the same level of threat to the United States. So, very much, I think China is actually at the top of that list. Um, something that the United States definitely fears is a closer Russia and China because that actually makes, that makes it incredibly difficult if it ever comes to blows between China and the United States. Um, but I think that there's no doubt about it, that part of what Biden is talking about is China as an authoritarian power, uh, being part of a long-term struggle against the United States and its allies to, um, for the structure and fate and, and, and nature of the, of the of the future of the of the world order, so yeah, I, I think that absolutely China is included in there. Although although during his speech, I think that China, I think that it was interesting that that Biden actually didn't mention China. Uh, the the visit was actually very very focused on Ukraine and Russia and making sure to to maintain. Um, the morale in Europe to continue to support Ukraine as, as sanctions fatigue really sets in, as uh, capitals get a little bit jittery and want to look for different kinds of off-ramps um, in order to alleviate their own economic issues. Um, yeah, so 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 China's definitely involved in this, in, in this struggle. However, um, yes, it wasn't mentioned during the speech, but it's definitely top of mind.
0: There is this threat that if Russia... Collapses if uh, the Russian state state is no more, um, there will be a vacuum of power in Central Asia, in Siberia. Um, what could China do in such
2: circumstances? Um, so it's, China doesn't actually have the the power to completely support uh, the state of Russia from collapse, um, which is why we're going to see support for from from China to Russia in order to prevent it ever reaching that point. Um... China is not capable of providing security in the region. It's been there's been, Traditionally, there's been a real division of power in Central Asia uh, with, with Russia as the main security actor and, and China as the main economic actor. If, Russia, if the Russian um, state were to collapse, there'd be, yes, like you said, the big vacuum of power, but also huge potential for instability. Uh, China would have to increase its capacity to project uh, power into the region and provide a more security role. However, it's really, at this point in time, ill-equipped to do so. Especially as its attention is turned turned towards its coast uh, to a potential conflict with the United States over Taiwan, um, th- there's a lot of speculation that that uh, that uh, China is interested in in gaining control over Russian lands in order to have access to resources. Uh, that's really speculation. It's also I don't think that within China's interest. China it has plenty of problems of its own uh, domestically. It doesn't actually. I don't think, personally, I don't think that it has any territorial ambitions in, uh, on, the, on the Eurasian continent of, of at least Russian lands. Uh, so it's definitely within its interests for Russia to, to maintain um, coherence uh, and to support the Russian state as long as it can.
0: Earlier you mentioned that uh, for the United States is the China indeed, which is the biggest threat, not Russia. Now, for many years, Russia was even uh, seemed as... Um counterweight for china in in the region Um, but do you think this argument of china can be used by some political groups maybe some republicans especially trumpists um, to 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 um, to advocate for not helping ukraine or for uh, engaging less
2: yeah so so there's there's uh definitely um the war in ukraine definitely diverts uh, the attention of the United States and its allies. It diverts resources as well. I mean, it's drawing from stockpiles. Uh, you are, arguably, this could... Um, detract from the amounts of support that 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 the United States would otherwise give to the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, currently, I don't think that we've actually seen any material effect like that. I think that it's still been able to walk and chew gum at the same time. It's still been able to maintain engagement in in East Asia. If anything, I think the war in Ukraine has really underlined U.S. credibility of its dedication to defending democracy, because that's also what what um, what uh, the United States' primary interest is. Interests are in Taiwan. It is one of the strongest democracies in Asia. Um, so I think that it's been a boon for credibility. Yes, it's been a draw on on U.S. attention and resources, and that of its allies as well. Uh, however, at this point in time, I don't think that it's that it's reduced the readiness of the United States to respond. I mean, there's uh, to a Taiwan uh, Straits crisis. That there's its there are its there are its own set of it, of issues in that in that region, uh, even without. Um, the Ukraine factor being involved. I, I think that at this point in time, the two are, are somewhat separate and, and not affecting each other.
0: Wolfgang, Wolfgang Ischinger, uh, who was um, speaking with uh, Wang Yi, asked him to assure the audience that there is no imminent military escalation in the Strait of Taiwan. Uh, in response, uh, Wang Yi said that he can assure audience, yeah. that Taiwan is part of China, and that all the fault for the conflict is on the side of, as as he said, uh, Taiwan separatists. So do you think there is an imminent threat of military escalation?
2: Um, so it, China has never ruled out the use of force to, to uh, quote-unquote reunify with Taiwan. Uh, escalation is always possible. I think it's actually increasingly possible. Um, as China actually faces a closing window of opportunity, um, in, on Taiwan Island, you have a, a, a kind of a, a um, natural indigenous identity of Taiwan as an independent country, really taking root among among youth in Taiwan. Uh, and as that goes on, as that as that kind of independent identity grows stronger, it becomes increasingly difficult for China for the PRC to to take and hold Taiwan Island. Um, <clears throat> So there's that kind of time pressure there to, to move sooner rather than later. There's a, there's a few other factors that are also that also make escalation increasingly likely. Um, as Taiwan, kind of ch- Taiwan Taiwan's defense um, posture has mostly been shaped towards head-to-head conflict with, with the PRC, at least traditionally. Um, so it's de- so for the past you know, for at least f- five decades following the Civil War, uh, or four decades is f- following the Civil War most of Taiwan's uh, defense was was actually geared towards invading and retaking the mainland I mean that was like kind of one of one of Shinkai kai-shek's uh, legacies there so so actually um, now, actually, Taiwan is very, is very much ill-prepared for any potential conflict with, with the PRC. Um, it's been changing uh, it, that sh- those structures uh, to become more of what it calls a porcupine or something that's very difficult to hold. It's been developing more of its asymmetric capabilities, uh, which, which are designed to try to slow down any potential uh, invasion by the PRC. Uh, Instead of instead of meeting it head on, Uh, and it becomes crucial for it to for it to slow down the PRC or the PLA uh, long enough for there to be a response by the United States and its allies. Um, So so that's a factor. It's like as it develops that capacity, um, that's also uh, uh, more adding pressure to this closing window of opportunity for the PLA. And secondly, the United States and its allies are, are putting more resources in the region. I don't know if you saw recently, uh, there's an agreement between the United States and the Philippines to give them access to four bases in the Philippines. One in particular is at the very North end of the Philippines, which which will greatly improve the, the ability of the United States to respond to any potential crisis there. Uh, so, that as Taiwan slows down the PLA's advance and the United States increases its ability to respond rapidly Again, we're in a situation where, where China's ability to take Taiwan uh, uh, decreases over time. Um, so these fact, and then it actually even gets worse than that. Uh, both sides actually have first mover advantage in this situation. Uh, if, ta- if China were to strike first, it would gain advantage by striking Guam and other US air bases in the Indo-Pacific. If the United States were to strike first, it would, it would, it would target the PRC or the PLA's uh, communications and targeting, te- uh, targeting uh, bases. Uh, and blind the PLA so that it be able to respond so so not only is there a closing window of opportunity both both sides of this conflict have have huge incentives to strike first so it's actually an incredibly dangerous situation and very rocky and 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 uh, hard to see how it moves forward um, so yeah, escalation is definitely also a political priority of Xi Jinping. Something that he wants to, something that he has said before is something that he wants to address during his time in power, which now looks like it's going to be until the rest of his life. But still, um, it is something that is um, that has uh, in each national party congress has been um, a priority and something that the party mentions that it's something that it wants to to accomplish soon.
0: So, do you think uh, we are approaching the first world war?
2: I mean that's a big question. I think if if we're not already uh we're definitely already in a cold war. Um uh, I don't I don't it it's it's really hard to say at what point it's it is or is going to happen or would or is going to happen. Um I I I'm I'm not a defense expert so I'm a little bit uh, I'm not the person to ask these questions in particular. Uh, I look more at the polit- political side of things but um uh it's definitely a, a tangible possibility.
0: Last question. China seemed to draw the line for Russia at the use of chemical and nuclear weapons. Uh, however, we know from the past that Russia can use whatever weapon Russia chooses to use. Uh, so, what could be uh, China, uh, China's response?
2: Um, well, China's policies have been consistent. Um, it, it has always been against uh, first use of, of nuclear weapons. Um, so I don't. So for it to say that is is cheap and easy. I don't think that that's any any significant difference than, than what it said before. So I don't think that actually makes any difference to Putin uh, on his choice whether or not to use nuclear weapons. Uh, on the biochemical weapons, I think actually, if anything, China has has made it easier or or has. Um, given further justifications to Russia to use these weapons if it so chooses. I think that it's important to remember that one of the justifications of Russia's invasion of Ukraine was the claim that there was U.S. biochemical weapons bases or biochemical uh, laboratories there. Uh, this is something that the Chinese government really really caught on to because it also supports its own disinformation internally saying that the COVID-19 actually was was manufactured by U.S. bio-weapons bio labs and then brought to China uh, in, in October of 2019. Um, so it's actually uh, strengthened uh, Russia's justification for using biochemical wef- weapons if it chooses. So so I don't think that while it might while it might say that it opposes the use of biochemical weapons, it definitely hasn't done anything to to deter their use, in my opinion. Thank you very much.
0: This was the Political Periscope.
2: The podcast is released every Thursday at 7 p.m.